Oh, so good. It is. I love it so yes. much. Every single time. It's awesome. Hello, and welcome to another great episode of the greatest podcast in history. I'm Mitch. And I'm Dylan. And I was going to say this is the greatest podcast in history again, but we just yeah. ruined ourselves. So I won't do that. Well, you know, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to, to repeat it. Exactly. Who's so, that a quote from, Mitch? Uh... William Shakespeare. That's not true, I don't think. Uh, I do not know. <laughs> I don't know either, so we're both out of luck on this one. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the greatest podcast in history, um, and this week we're talking um, about uh, colonialism and mm-hmm. the partition of India. Yeah. First, we're going to start with a little history of British colonialism, though. Yeah. Because it's a... Uh, when you talk about history, it's important to get the history of the history you're talking about. Exactly. Nothing is really true unless you have context around exactly. it. Exactly. And nothing is true at all, just in general, even with context. Well, nothing is true unless we say it's Exactly. True. Unless we tell you that if we cover this happened this way, then it's right. If we cover it on the podcast, you know that's a valuable source of information. Exactly. 100%. Cite us. Please. I Oh, please. I want to find myself on Google Scholar someday for being cited in a podcast. Yes. How dope would that be? <laughs> Probably be terrible. How do you even cite a podcast? Uh, it's like uh, minute 42, uh, 33 no. seconds. We'll leave that to the APA yeah. styles, you know, Chicago style, which history, historians use. We, we don't even bother with that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know. Ugh. Ugh. I yeah. own the two copies of the Chicago Manual style. It's bad. Why? You can just look it up online. Uh, Mitch, because I like to use paper. I don't I like the tactile sensation like any real historian. Okay, well, I'm trying to save the environment. Uh, clearly, you don't care about it. Uh, no. So I only use electronics. That's pens. dumb. That's I bad. definitely didn't print off like 200 pages of reading yeah, really? for class this week. Um, I can't print it out readings. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, I mean, since the beginning of human history, there's been a lot of empires. Empires have risen and fall, and a lot of historians kind of model their work around empires, even. Exactly, especially in the beginnings of history. Yeah. And up until, what, like the 1930s, 1920s, that was like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire mm-hmm. was like the classical historical work. Exactly. Um, and it wasn't really until... Um, until like after World War One, they see a lot of loud and in the public uh, sphere protest against the ideas of imperialism. Exactly, like imperial, like empires were pretty much inherently good, like up until World War One, because mm-hmm. it showed that your country was strong and that like you know the strong had power, so they took what they what was owed to them. Essentially, it was the yeah, idea. yeah. It's, it's also interesting because you just talk about like university studies and stuff like that, the classics and classical studies was a cornerstone of education mm-hmm. uh, for all the elites for, for centuries. Uh, people always studied about ancient Greece and ancient Rome um, and kind of the, the philosophers that they that they fostered in this imperial system. Exactly. And we still have that in today's schools. I yeah. mean, you'd like take Civ. Western Civ is all about, like, the Greeks and the Romans, like, the first half mm-hmm. of that class. And now, because, you know, we're enlightened and liberal, we talk about, like, the Zulu Empire, too. Yeah. But there's no really talk of, like, th- if empires were good or, like, bad, like, that moral suggestion isn't. I mean, some schools, I'm sure it is there if you live somewhere super liberal. Um, but for the most part, they're just taken as granted and that that's what it was. Yeah. I mean, it's it's important to study these, oh, these yeah. empires just because 
every, I mean, it has, it still has such a big effect on, on Western civilization in general. Um, whether it's, you know, a media, you see, um, I was, you know, there's a video game called Smite out where you play as, like, Greek and Roman gods. Exactly. Um, or even just, like, you know, some Sid Meier's Civ games. Exactly. Um, and a lot of these nations, like, there's always the question of, is the United States the new Rome, em- Roman Empire, and stuff like that. People draw these comparisons all the time, and there's, there's a reason that uh, the United States... Uh, official symbol is the bald eagle. Uh, same with the German Empire used the mm-hmm. eagle too, and, and the Russian Empire and all these other countries used the uh, eagle because it was initially a symbol of Rome. Exactly, yeah. Like the cultural significance, and not just cultural, like economic, all these types of things uh, that came from the Greek and Roman empires were huge. Yeah. But And so empires have been around for a super long time. Yeah. I, mean, I, I wish that we had like the, the pigeon as our symbol. Or like didn't Benjamin Franklin wanted to be the turkey. The turkey, yeah. yeah, that'd be cool. Turkeys are idiots. They drown if they look <laughs> up during in the rain because then they just like they don't know how to like not drown during that. Yeah, and I guess it would be awkward every Thanksgiving if you ate like your national mascot. Yeah, that'd be wouldn't be great. That, that would. I mean, turkey's gross, so I'm fine with losing that part. Okay. Um, well, that's that's another debate for a different time. Oh, okay. yeah, that's, I want to talk about this right now, <laughs> folks. Turkey sucks. Ah, oh, jeez. <laughs> turkey is delicious. And exactly. So, I mean, we talked about how empires have been a huge part of history, but it's only been recently that people have started about like colonialism mm-hmm. and that colonialism and subaltern studies, which subaltern has kind of gone out of style that phrasing, um, but it's still like an important part of the historiography. Um, like that sort of research, the research, the research around people who were, were uh, who were like, who were colonialized, essentially, people who were colonized. taken advantage. Yeah, colonized. Oh boy, <laughs> it's Friday. Um, the people who were colonized by these empires mm-hmm. and were subjugated by them. Research on these peoples has only just started to come into play, uh, and taken a taken up a large, large role because there were so many people who, at one point in their like lives were under colonial rule. Mm-hmm. And so now there's been a large, there's been much more work on this going on in history, which is a good thing. Yeah, and I think it makes sense that it's more of a of a modern um, idea, field of study, because if you look at I mean, the geographic scope of like the Roman Empire, it was huge, but it was really just around the Mediterranean and in, up into Britain and into kind of the, the Middle East and things like that. Um, whereas if you look at the height of the British Empire, you have it Everywhere, yeah. around the entire world, uh, and affecting people who who look so much different from the from the colonizers and, and things like that. That there's a lot of different layers um, and tensions and kind of different subjects that are inherent to uh, a larger empire, a global empire that you see in the later Brit- British Empire compared to like the Roman Empire. Exactly. I mean, and just like the effects of the Roman and Greek empires are still with us, the effects of the you know the British. Uh, French empires are still also very, very much in play uh, in modern day. So it's important to study where these things are coming from and what made them like they are. Absolutely. So I think we should talk a little bit about, before we get into the end, quote-unquote, end of colonialism in India with the partition of India, just like a little bit of the history of British colonialism and where that came from. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I guess it started with Ireland. Yeah, a lot of people 
you know, don't really think of this. They think of the British Empire as divide or as going to the Americas or dividing up Africa or in India. Australia. Um, yeah, in Australia. But really, the first British colonial experiment uh, before they even sent colonists to the United States uh, was in Ireland. Uh, the English saw the Irish as a lesser race. Exactly. And Keep in mind the word Mitch used, experiment. Because that, I think, puts you in, like, a good headspace for what mm-hmm. these British people were thinking at the time. Because these are people we're talking about. They're, like, mm-hmm. human beings with lives and cultures and fully functioning states. And the British are like, oh, we'll run experiments on them. Pretty much. Like, colonial experiments. So that's, like, a good, like, framework for thinking about how the British, like, head command were thinking at this time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't have a ton of details on this, but yeah. it really got started with uh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth I um, began basically removing all of the Irish nobles um, that were... Because Ireland was a very heavily Catholic country, just like it is now. Um, And Elizabeth was a Protestant monarch and wanted to keep it that way. And so she essentially displaced all the Catholic nobles in Ireland and replaced them with uh, English nobles or Protestant nobles. And they really kind of got a foothold in the northern part of Ireland, kind of around the Ulster region. Um, And this is kind of the beginnings of the modern division of Ireland between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and so you can still see to, to this day that Ire- island of Ireland <laughs> is divided. <laughs> Say that three times fast. Exactly. Um, and then uh, Cromwell also, well, when he came to power, uh, committed countless atrocities against the Irish people because he was a very, he was much more um, fanatical about yeah. his rule and his power and the, the role of religion in under, uh, as he controlled uh, the Great Britain. And so he really uh, led a lot of kind of, I don't know, massacres of a mm-hmm. lot of Irish people. Yeah, and I mean, the Irish massacres weren't the first time there were massacres happening mm-hmm. in the colonial uh, quote unquote experiment mm-hmm. that was while a lot of things did change from uh, place to place where the British colonized uh, the massive death of people they were colonial colonizing that mm-hmm. word is gonna mess me up this whole podcast you know they were colonizing that was like pretty much the key factor that stayed in place through everywhere mm-hmm. yeah but I mean, they, yeah they, they sent settlers to to kind of colonize um, Ireland and definitely with the purpose of getting rid of that native population of native Irish, which it sounds so strange because they're so close in proximity and uh, it it seems, you know, it's all the Great Britain and whatnot, but to them it it wasn't that way. Uh, And that's so that's where a lot of the early kind of sending settlers to a distant land uh, tradition of English uh, colonialism came, got its beginnings. Oh, yeah, huge, I mean, huge tradition, like the sending of settlers or, you know, Prisoners, if it was, I was yeah. talking about Australia. Because, I mean, you have to have a foothold there, and so you need not just, in the British way of thinking, you can't just have, like, rulers and military people. You have to have people who are working the land. Mm-hmm. And I think um, if, if you notice, if you pay attention to kind of what these early empires were doing around the 1500s and 1600s, uh, a lot of them were maritime-based empires. The Portuguese mm-hmm. and the Dutch and the English had uh, some of the, the biggest empires. Yeah. People forget that there. the Dutch and the Portuguese were once, like, had the biggest navies in the world. And exactly, yeah. Owned, were very, very rich. Yeah, and so that's what allowed them in the, the age of exploration, as it's, as it's called, um, these are the countries that uh, really came to prominence 
um, and really the home country benefited from a lot, all these uh, colonial rules. So you see where what were the countries that were sending out the most explorers to chart the high seas and and, and find routes to routes to the east and the orient and stuff like that. What were those? What countries were those? And then you'll also see what countries had the biggest empires at that time. Exactly, and it's important to keep in mind, as we'll see, a lot of like these colonial empires later on, once the colonizing had already started, had to justify it to their people. Because mm-hmm. there was a tremendous amount of expense at the beginning that wasn't really seen for most people. And so they justified it by that they were, quote-unquote, you know, taming the savages, essentially, bringing religion to these people, when really, in effect, they were just, you know, it was a mercantile system and they are making themselves rich. Mm-hmm. All these, like, the East India Trading Company, they're all royally owned uh, in a sense, are controlled by like a very few number of people who reaped most of their benefits mm-hmm. from this. Yeah, and so like the, that whole we're colonizing, we're like saving people, only came after as a uh, as like an excuse for what they were doing. Yeah, uh, probably because like most people that were going out there were either like um, explorers or they were pirates. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there were lots of, it's also the age of exploration in, in this kind of time period also lines up with like the quote unquote golden age of piracy also. Um, which you know, International waters were still free. You could do whatever you wanted. Amen. Jack Sparrow <laughs> it, did nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. Yeah. Uh, set him free. <laughs> yeah. So while Ireland was very close uh, for Britain, um, they did eventually expand much farther. Uh, they joined in the massive uh, land grab, essentially in Africa, mm-hmm. including uh, and as did the Dutch and the Portuguese, uh, and France, and you know every other colony that could get a chunk of it. Yeah. Uh, Italy got beaten back. Yeah, uh, the newly unified Germany got in there for yeah. for a little bit and things like that. Um, but you also see um, Australia. We can throw yeah. that in real quick. Um, began as a prison colony, um, and I still don't know why you'd want to live there because there's so many things, animals that can kill you um, if you don't die in the outback. Yeah, um, if you don't die in the desert, an animal will kill you. Yes. Uh, so I guess that's why they sent the, the prisoners there. Uh, but that was another. It was actually much later compared yeah. to the, the United States. Uh, what would be the United States and Ireland? Um, much later colonial experiments uh, that also had a decimating effect on the native population. Mm-hmm. Um, As all these colonial experiments did. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're bringing new diseases with you, and mm-hmm. then you're also just outright murdering people. Yeah. Which, yeah, I don't, I don't know the numbers on if murder or disease killed more, but, I mean, they don't, disease. You don't really need those. Disease. Well, yeah. yeah, without exactly. a doubt. Um, the uh, the one thing that the the natives, at least in North America, did give back to the um, to the Europeans was uh, was syphilis. Yeah, they like, did back. give back. Like, there's nice present. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's, that's it was one like a two way thing. thing. <laughs> it was totally fine. No, uh, not saying that. I would just I just like to throw in that. Um, that little tidbit of information every now and then. But yeah, I mean, so the British, uh, but they're two, the two biggest, uh, essentially, places where the British were, were the Middle East, what we now know as the Middle East, mm-hmm. the dumbest name for any, like, middle of, like, what is so dumb, uh, and then the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two biggest uh, and most, I don't know, long-lasting, I don't know the years, Australia and Canada were still 
technically like yeah. quote unquote colonies, I guess, for a super long time. Mm-hmm. But they were two of the places where they had the most influence and gained uh, the most money. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, they did it a little differently. Yeah, it's, it's it's very in- interesting to, if you look at how the British set up their colonial uh, governments and their policies, uh, beginning with Ireland, moving to the, to the Americas and Australia, to Africa, to the Middle East, and then India. Um, because in each different region, uh, it was all happening really at kind of in a different period of time, and they were taking some of the ideas um, and, and kind of mentalities of the period and applying it to how they approach those people. Exactly. And that's important to remember, too. People tend to think of empires as being one thing in time. But most empires lasted hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Like the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, like all these empires, they were around for a very long time. And when you do that, you have different people in charge and different ways of thinking about things. And that affects how the empire is. So there's different stages in every single empire. Yeah. for example, I'll, I'll begin with the Middle East. Yeah. Um, they're in the book called like Covert Empire or something like that. Um, that I read, it was all about how the British, uh, when they were really going in full force into the Middle Eastern region with Egypt um, and, and Saudi Arabia area, um, they, they, it was happening later in their own empire. It was, they were focusing on it mainly around the turn of the century. Uh, especially after World War One, even uh, this was at a time when imperialism was beginning to feel a lot of uh, opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, public opposition was was going against the idea of empires, and so the British structured their empire in the Middle East as more of a of a covert empire with less people on the ground, less people. Um, they're not they're not sending colonists. They're not sending settlers. They're not trying to necessarily uh, push out the. Uh, the the population that's living there. Instead, they kind of just draw a border around it and said, this is our territory. Uh, We'll give you guys some liberties and and rights. You can kind of govern yourself, but you're, at the end of the day, you're under our control. You'll fight for us. Uh, You'll send us uh, some of your resources and things like that. And uh, it was really interesting. One of the main ways that they carried out this type of empire was with the new invention of of airplanes. Um, Uh, biplanes would be sent over the, these vast amounts uh, areas of deserts in order to kind of survey and keep an eye on and, and monitor local populations. Exactly. And I think the Mitch talked about drawing on a map. Uh, and that is another key point to remember. Like, the reason, not the reason, but one of the a big reason why the Middle East is now so messed up, you know, outside of America, imperialism, is because once they left and once when they got there, that drawing on the map was literally just drawing. Mm-hmm. They didn't really know the region. They didn't know the... Uh, like the cultural groups that were there or any sort of like groupings that had happened throughout history, like the historical um, way that they had set up their countries there. And so they just drew kind of like, this is Jordan, this is Syria, et cetera, et cetera. And that, you know, completely messed up all the cultural and religious and societal boundaries that had been there for forever and just restructured them completely. And, you know, people, want, and they're like, oh, why is it so messed up there? It's like, well, because British colonialism. Mm-hmm. Among many other things, of course, but that is a huge reason. Yeah. Um, 
And it's I'm gonna jump around a little bit yeah. um, to the division of Africa, mm-hmm. uh, which played out uh, much similar in that they just drew lines on the map. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes in order to try and um, push different groups against each other so that it'd be mm-hmm. easier to subdue and control. Um, but uh, Dr. Atunu here at DePaul, uh, I'm taking a class with him, and he's a specialist in African history and colonialism and imperialism. And he was kind of talking about how when you draw these lines on the map, um, you know, at, at first especially, it's you have no idea where the boundaries at, began and end and what are these new countries that have just been created. Uh, but now it's been, you know, it's been a century since those boundaries were first created. So you see people having... It, living in these countries, having a crisis of identity, they see themselves as part of their their ancient tribes mm-hmm. um, and, and their ancient communities, and, and they they still hold those ancestral roots to where they're from and where their old um, dom- domains were. But you know they've been part of this country now for that's been that's existed for a hundred or hundreds exactly, of years. Yeah. So they're also they also see themselves as as people of this new country. Um, so, so you know, it's it's yeah, it's just drawn on the map. But now that so much time has passed, they are kind of effect. concrete. Yeah. yeah, they are now concrete boundaries, and these people living within them have to abide by those boundaries as well as their own ancestral boundaries. And so they have to see, you know, how does that play out inside of them and their identity? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, the effects are still very, very much going on right now. And we'll see the same case, uh, what happened in India, when the boundaries were drawn at the end of colonialism rather than at the beginning of colonialism. Ooh. Oh. So I look forward to, is that foreshadowing? It's foreshadowing, guys. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, By foreshadowing, it means it'll probably talk about it in like two minutes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, talk, going back to the Middle East a little bit, mm-hmm. um, that's what, like, the British presence in the Middle East was there, like, the Ottoman Empire, you know, quote-unquote, the sick man of Europe. And so, which pretty much allowed the British to stay in there until the end of World War One, World War II, uh, when colonialism started to fall apart. Yeah, it really was. Um, actually, I think it was really at the end of World War Two that uh, the British presence really was kind of pulled out from the Middle East, Um because even in the, in the interwar period, uh, British Britain was desperately trying to cling to to their empire, and that's why they uh, they they made the Middle East more of a covert empire without uh, less. It wasn't as hands on as as their past empires. Exactly. I mean, and even though it wasn't hands on, they still made billions and millions of dollars off of it. Yeah. It really destroyed people, but it was like, we have to be less obvious about it because people at home are getting mad. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we'll pretend we're not here, even exactly. though we actually are and we're a huge force in, like, the area. Yeah, pretty much. Um, uh, yeah. You have the story of, like, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who, in World War One. Uh, he was he was a renowned archaeologist, I, I believe, mm-hmm. and he was sent there by the British to help um, kind of muster up a force of of Turks against against the Ottoman Empire. Um, in in Turkey and the remnants of the empire, you saw a lot of different forces at work in this period. You saw the Young Turks movement, uh, which was a national nationalist group uh, that was really trying to look for to the future towards a independent Turkey. Um, fighting against the old ancient Ottoman Empire, and Lawrence um, 
Lawrence of Arabia, as he's commonly yeah. known, uh, really kind of helped out or was a part of this. He was involved in this kind of covert movement uh, against the Ottoman Empire um, and try, trying to rise up against them. Exactly. I mean, and uh, British colonialism also is a huge part of why uh, Israel, the current country of Israel, is where it's at mm-hmm. uh, today because um, the British colonialists wrote a famous white paper about the state of Israel and why it should be uh, in Jerusalem. I mean, it wasn't always the Zionist faction of is, uh, Israel wasn't always in control and saying that Israel should be, uh, you know, where Jerusalem is at. There are lots of other places considered, but British colonialists claimed that Palestine was essentially empty uh, <laughs> and that that was a perfect spot uh, for them religiously. And the paper they wrote um, gained a lot of traction in the movement um, post uh uh, World War Two. Yeah. Uh, so I guess now we'll move uh, to India a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, talk about the partition, the end of colonialism, um, in the end of like de jure colonialism, de, mm-hmm. de facto de jure. I don't know what I'm talking about. The end of like legal colonialism in yeah. India. Uh, so this is once again post World War Two, uh, 1947 is when um, the British left officially mm-hmm. uh, India, and this event, the partition of India. Is the is the event um, in the history of modern day India and the modern day Pakistan? Mm-hmm. You cannot talk about these countries and their development without talking about the partition. It's such a huge event. Um, I mean, it mark one. It marks the founding of both countries, um, but it also um, was such a bloody and horrible event that it has uh, continued to affect the way both countries uh, interact with themselves and are, interact with each other. Which uh, countries are you talking? Sorry, about? India and Pakistan. Okay, that's why. Um, that's why I yeah. figured. But yeah, I, was like, I, I should not yeah. assume. Also, Bangladesh is also involved in here. Okay. Um, I'm, and the book I'll be using for most of this is uh, the Partition of India by Ian Talbot, a British person, and uh, Guharpal Singh, an Indian man. So uh, both pro- one professor at uh, University of Southampton and the other a professor at University of Brigham, Brigham, Br- Birmingham. Guys, uh, it's we're going it's on a Friday night. Oh, uh, yeah. Pronouncing Brigham, Birmingham. I swear we have so. not started drinking yet, although it is Friday. I um. wish we should. Um, so just to quote them at the beginning, is they're right, and this is a fairly new book. They say over sixty years on. The effects of 1947 continue to impact on both state and society. India and Pakistan, two nuclear-armed states, remain an uneasy dialogue, and the, quote, unfinished business of partition, the Jammu and Kashmir dispute, still make them distant neighbors. And then he says later on, uh, importantly, both states have been internally shaped more by the division of 1947 than is publicly acknowledged. So their argument here is that the the partition is such a huge event that both countries still can't really talk about it in terms that help them come to realize how much it's affected them. Okay. And they go on later in this book to write about how historian historians in both um, uh, India and Pakistan can't really talk about like they can't talk about it um, objectively at all. Not that anyone can ever talk anyone about anything objectively, but the history and the way partition is taught in both countries affects everyone so much that to be a scholar in India or Pakistan means you can't really write about uh, India, the partition, mm-hmm. uh, as like historians quote-unquote you know, should. Like It just affects everyone so much in different ways. And this is true without the state. Uh, all politicians uh, come to talk about it this way. Yeah. 
I feel like we should start doing this disclaimer in our uh, podcast saying that you cannot talk about anything objectively, really. Yeah, exactly. Uh, history is subjective <laughs> and things like that. Uh, there are no real facts or one interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and they argue that just like the partition is influenced people at so many different levels that they say they say so rich is partition as an ideological resource that its possibilities are continuously reconstructed at both state and community level. Hmm. So they're saying that not only is it affecting everybody, people are taking advantage of the effects of partition to make ideological claims, whether they're a politician or just some rabble rouser. Like, partition is such a key point, such a measuring touchstone in uh, history that it's uh, it's resonant for everyone in India in mm-hmm. many different ways. It's interesting. So it seems like, because uh, I'm learning a lot of this just from you right now, yeah, yeah, yeah. it seems like um, for, for a lot of, like, American history, we have, like, you, you can say that there's, there's a whole different United States after the Civil War Correct. or the end of World War to ushered in a new era, it seems like the, this partition of Af- of India, sorry, it yeah. <laughs> wasn't just the beginning of a new era or a new age, just like a, as a marker that like that way. It was fundamental. It shaped fundamentally how people interpret everything about exactly. Indian and Pakistani history. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's such like a. There's yeah. I mean, the Civil War could be an event like that. World War Two. Um, the Cold War I guess, mm-hmm. is probably like I think the Cold War is maybe the closest we have to a partition, just because it's more recent. Like partition is you know sixty some years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's such like the anti-communist thing has invaded like how everyone was thinking at the time. It mm-hmm. still has because it's such a like you can still say like anti-communism or like Russia and people still even like me you haven't. Technically, I have lived through it. I was born in 1990, so I saw just the fall, but I also don't remember anything. Like, I still, like, I would pull up pretty much the same images as anybody else who lived during the Cold War, you know, Mm -hmm. because these things are huge. And so they're also doing a little bit of revisionist um, history in this work. Um, They, of course, um, they want to talk about um, the effects of colonialism on India, but they also don't want to stray too far the other way by blaming it all on the British. That's Mm. one of their uh, points, is that while the British, obviously, and colonialism has huge effects on the country, a lot of what happened uh, right up to, leading up to the partition and post-partition did involve the actions of of Indian and Pakistani people at the time. They're not, they don't want to take away, we talked about agency recently, Mm -hmm. they are still giving agency to these people and saying, while they're living under the effects of colonialism, the way they interpreted those effects and used those effects were their actions. And so not everything bad that happened, you know, in Pakistan or India from the partition is all the British fault. Interesting. Which is interesting. Yeah. I think a good way to read it. Absolutely. uh, Because not everything is one thing's fault. Mm -hmm. People are like, people are, these people were incredibly smart they're talking about and they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, bl- I mean, blame is a part is is goes hand in hand with kind of agency and with power exactly. and things like that. Um, oftentimes you know, with the negative connotation, but it's it is true. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess um, just a little bit. Um, we won't talk about too much about this because this you could talk about. I mean, you could do an entire class on the partition. Uh, it's so incredibly like dense, and so many things happen leading up to it. So we won't go too much into that. But it's some brief history. Um, So the British were ruling India uh, post-World War II. 
Uh, but then they decided to get out. There's lots of pressure, both from internal Indian movements. Uh, mm-hmm. Gandhi, of course, was a big leader um, to get rid of it. Um, and then there are also uh, movements at home as well to end colonialism and get out of all these countries. There's and, also, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, there's also a lot of international pressure exactly. at this point. Um, I know that FDR, a lot of times through World War II, uh, was kind of constantly reminding Winston Churchill, who was an ardent uh, imperialist, uh, that he should start. Um, getting rid of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so FDR did have a hand, uh, no, I'm not saying necessarily you know, how much, how direct in India, but in pressuring Churchill to t- start taking the United Kingdom away from their imperial uh, philosophy. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so we're talking like 1945, uh, 1946, 1947, the wheels are turning um, for the leaving of the British from India. Uh, and usually what had happened before in other places was that this was a, it was a very long transition. It happened over a period of years. They slowly removed, the, you know, the army, the army, the colonialists, and then gave power back to the colonies um, through like a series of small steps. That's not what happened in India. It was incredibly quick. Hmm. Uh, Mountbatten, who was like the viceroy of India, and India at this point uh, included all of modern India, all of Bangladesh, um, all of Tibet. That might be wrong, but I think it's right. <laughs> and then all of Pakistan, as well as like Sri Lanka. Uh, so it was all these places were under the Viceroy of India at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are obviously very varying ethnic groups uh, living in all of these countries. Um, and, I mean, and they're in Pakistan, in India, there's also uh, other, um, there's even smaller um, minority groups and ethnic mm-hmm. groups within these countries as well. And they're all living under the banner of uh, the India of India. <laughs> uh, and so Mountbatten... Um, speeds up the, uh, I, guess, I don't want to call it like the partition process, speeds up like the, the decolonization process. Mm-hmm. He's like, we're going to have to do it by 1947, like this particular date. Like this is when it's going to happen. And that mm-hmm. date is like eight years, eight months wow. from when he said it. So that's incredibly quickly. Absolutely. Uh, from when he said it. I always thought, that, and it's interesting what you just said, um, because I always thought that, Part of the the British philosophy in some of their kind of um, colonization movements was uh, saying to the native people, we'll come in and we'll civilize you. Mm -hmm. And after a period of time, you'll be civilized enough to take over on your own terms. And I thought that's what they were also going to do with India, was that that was the plan all along, was to to eventually give the Indians their independence um, once they had become, quote-unquote, smart enough or whatever, uh, to do that, I mean, I yeah, know. that's like that's like the excuse, the civilizing. Yeah, yeah. But they're making you know money hand over heel, mm-hmm. and no one's whining about it. So they're not going to leave, even if you know they still like all the royal, uh, the old royal families in India. They're all sending their sons to be educated in Britain, mm-hmm. and they're like they're at the standards or whatever yeah. of you know Western civilization. Like they're they're not going to leave unless they're forced to. Absolutely, and their hand was forced. Mm. Uh, so the date was set for partition. Uh, let me get the number right. It is in August. Uh, so the 14th and 15th of August, 1947. And this date was set uh, like eight months beforehand. And so they had to figure out what are they going to, what are, like, what's going to happen? Uh, how are we going to, like, how are they going to rule themselves once the British leave? Mm-hmm. Are we going to make it just one big country? Uh, ruled like the, the colony of India, the, viceroy, the viceroyalty of India will stay the viceroyalty of India? Are we going to break it up? 
by disparate groups into ethnic groups. We're going to make it one country, make it two countries, three countries. All these questions had to be solved in eight months, <laughs> wow. which is an insane task. Yeah. Um, and eventually they came what was through a series of events that I mean, it's way too much to talk about right now and things that have been happening already um, that two countries was decided on. India and then Pakistan, which was divided into East and West Pakistan. West Pakistan being where current modern-day Bangladesh is. Okay. Interesting. And this came about through a series of uh, political maneuvers, both on the side of uh, the Pakistanis, the Indians, and the British. Um, the leader of the Pakistani movement was Jinnah. Um, he's, his, he's like the father of modern Pakistan. He's revered in the country today. Um, he, which is, Pakistan is a Muslim country. Uh, Jinnah himself uh, didn't really speak Pakistani, or his Urdu. Um, Urdu, Pashtun, I've read the language. He didn't speak the language of uh, Pakistan today. He wasn't a practicing Muslim. He ate pork, he smoked, he drank. He pretty much only spoke English. Um, wow. And yet he's still revered in, in Pakistan because he was the one who founded Pakistan. He was the one fighting the hardest uh, for the creation of this second state. Um, and he, what he did was he took advantage of a split that uh, the British government had found and helped use to create um, their colony. As Mitch talked about, in Africa, a lot of the lines that were drawn were over where the British tried to exploit uh, cultural differences and um, uh, hatreds, I guess, that took place. And so the British did the same thing in India. Uh, the cultural divide between um, the like the majority Hindi, uh, Hindu Indians, and then the majority Pakistani Muslim Pakistanis. Mm. Uh, this already existed, and the Pakistans, Pakistanis, if you was in one country, would have been in the minority. Okay. And Jinnah, who was um, he was a secularist, uh, but he used that advantage to uh, fight for the creation of Pakistan. He's like our our religion, our way of life. We'll be, we won't be minorities in a country. We won't be able to control ourselves. Mm -hmm. The Hindus will, like, force us to convert. And that was his main argument for the creation of Pakistan. And that's how he got the people behind him. Mm -hmm. Because, of, I mean, at this point, a fair amount of uh, people of, the pa of Pakistan were fervent Muslims and wanted to be, live in a Muslim country. Mm -hmm. And so he was able to use that split that the British created to help get Pakistan made. Interesting. Yeah. And so where these lines were drawn... Where there's one guy who did it, and I'm blanking on his name right now, but he was in charge. Is essentially just one guy in the British vice reality, someone in the government who's in charge of drawing the line and splitting up uh, the vice reality of India. We'll call him Gerald. We'll call him Gerald, unless I can find his name somewhere, which I won't be able to. Mm -hmm. um, so they draw these lines. Uh, and, and they try it so many different ways. They do a little surveying and, like, talking to the people, but they only have eight months. And you would think that after, you know, being in the country for a couple hundred years or whatever, they would know where the ethnic, different ethnic groups are, mm -hmm. uh, where the different uh, languages are spoken, where different religions are. Uh, but they, they mess it up so much. Yeah, they're like, no, this one looks too much like a, like a banana. Exactly. This. Yeah. Line looks too much like uh, you know a raisin. Exactly, they're just drawing on a map. Yeah. Um, and what they do, they're also uh, drawing um, where certain factories are. Mm. So at this point in time, um, Pakistan has um, like the area where modern day Pakistan is um, has a lot of the uh, agriculture, and then where India is is a lot of the factories. Um, where and so they split those in half. 
And it pretty much, uh, once that split happened, you, you had to have them in the same country if you want a country's economy to survive. Just having the raw materials, but not yeah. being able to manufacture them, if they ship them to a different country. Uh, and so in India, people in India were working behind the scenes, people like Nehru, um, he was a big supporter of an India for the for Hindus. Uh, he was he was able to influence the British to make sure that that line was drawn, you know, around like hydraulic power plants, around other factories. So even if they weren't ethnically Hindu areas, um, they were still in India control. Uh, and I mean, and these divisions weren't perfect either. Like to assume that you can just say this square mile is Hindu, this square mile is Muslim, <laughs> like this square mile is Chittagong Hill Tracks. That's like an insane thing to do. Yeah. And that's what they were thinking. People like cities at this time were completely like combined. There were, I mean, there are, you know, Pakistanis and Muslims and Pakistanis are Muslim. Pakistanis and Hindus living next to each other. Uh, that wasn't like a problem in a lot of cities. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were like major demographic areas where if you colored it, you know, blue or red, you would see more red, you see more blue, but most of the time they were purple. You'd have worse gerrymandering than you have in like exactly. Chicago. Yeah, you know, I mean, you have districts that are running a single street. Yeah. Like, it just, at this time, they were pretty mixed. But when these lines were creation and when partition happened, which wasn't announced great, no one really knew what was going on, no one really knew where the borders were. Yeah, oh, this is the big thing I'm forgetting. No one knew where the borders were exactly until August 14th and 15th. <laughs> they weren't announced ahead of time. Oh, it wasn't like, here, this is what's going to happen. This is where the borders will be on this date. It's like, here's the date. Here are the borders. Figure it out, which is a horrible way to do it. Yeah. Um, and what this caused when the partition actually happened was millions and millions of people had to move. Wow. So this is it's the biggest refugee uh, like event in the in world history, because you had millions of Pakistanis, millions of Muslims, uh, Pakistanis now living in India who wanted to move to Pakistan, and then mm-hmm. you had millions of Hindus living in Pakistan who wanted to move to India, and they wanted to move not you know maybe for religious reasons, maybe because they had family, but because they were being attacked. The amount of partisan violence that was occurring at these times. Uh, there's massacres all in both countries. Uh, and there had been building up um, to this. Uh, pre, didn't, the partition didn't create uh, the violence. The violence was pre-partition. Okay. Uh, and a lot of it was built around these sectarian ideas of um, like pitting the Hindus versus the Muslims. That the Hindus will try to make us Muslim or the Muslims will try to make us Hindu. Hmm. Because people like Jinnah, people like Nehru were building up this idea that we need a country for ourselves. Secretarian violence had existed in the viceroyalty of India pre all this talk, but it was just, I mean, it, to call it just violence is like people still died, but there, it wasn't like um, programmatic affairs to exterminate a certain type of people. It wasn't a genocidal like yeah. violence. It was like, okay, like a, a Hindu parade is coming up. And so maybe like after, you know, every 20 years or something, it will boil over and then, you know, street youths will attack each other and like, you know, five or six people will die, which is horrible. Yeah. But that happens in a lot of places. But now with all like the split that had happened, uh, the encouragement of certain leaders on both sides to violence, there yeah. are like recordings of leaders saying like, we have to get rid of, you know, the Muslim scourge, we have to get rid of the Hindu scourge. Wow. On both sides, this changed the type of violence that was happening. 
And so it had boiled over in a couple of places before partition, but partition actually happened, and now the borders were clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of seen as like a free-for-all. Because both countries were, there were new countries now. Mm-hmm. The, there was no Indian army. There was no Pakistani army. There were just like, maybe there were city militias. And so no one could really deal with these problems, and so it was seen as pretty much a free-for-all. Like, you could, if you were living in Pakistan and you were Muslim, you could pretty much loot and murder any Hindus you wanted to. Wow. And so people, with millions of people trying to get to their quote-unquote home country now, uh, there's no, unless you're super rich, you couldn't get a plane. There's pictures of these train lines being packed for miles and miles. You know, millions of people hanging on these trains with these dear lies. Those are the lucky ones. Other people have to walk. Uh, and so it's just it's this huge, huge event. Like it's a huge massacre on both sides. Millions of people lose their lives. Millions of people have to go to a whole new country, start a whole new life in a place they've never been, strictly because they were Hindu, strictly because they were Muslim. And so everything was completely messed up. And that's how India and Pakistan were born out of wow. colonialism. Yeah, and that's like the short version. Uh, there, I mean, the story itself is much, much longer. Mm-hmm. Hundreds and thousands of books in India alone have been written on it. And then if you add outside everything else, um, it's just, it's incredible. Uh, and so, I mean, that that whole split, India and Pakistan now, they're both, they both have nuclear arms and they both don't quite like each other. Um, a lot of the split ended up, there's an area, the Jammu-Kashmir area, is still fought over over who controls it. Hmm. Um, the highest altitude battle ever in U.S. history, in a, in a, sorry, in <laughs> world history, took place because of the partition. Um, there are these, there's this uh, glacier up in the, the Himalayan mountains, and the scientists wanted to um, go and uh, there's like some reason it's like the highest, the lowest glacier, highest glacier, something I don't know. There's some yeah. reason that people wanted to study it, and so scientists they went to Pakistan. Well, that's India first, and he's like, no, you can't go there because it's like a disputed area. And yeah. Pakistan was like, sure, why not? And so Pakistan took military guards with them <laughs> to this station, and India sees this, and then they bring their own guards. And now there's a standoff oh, in the middle of the Himalayas. Um, both soldiers on both sides are like going insane because they're just in the snow for like nine hours at a time, and all they can see is white. <laughs> and like, there's almost battles because like scientists are trying to study it. Like, wow. the effects of partition are huge and still take place. Yeah. Uh, Bangladesh um, was created out of, eventually, out of West Pakistan mm-hmm. because because it's, like, it was East Pakistan and, the, and then India in the middle and then West Pakistan. And they couldn't really rule um, to these two separate countries. Uh, one, because of West Pakistan, sorry, East Pakistan was made itself essentially the capital, economic capital, and didn't give any money to West Pakistan. So eventually they rebelled and India helped them, and that almost created another incident. <laughs> um, so the entire history of both, of all three of these countries, is completely tied up um, in this huge, massive refugee crisis that occurred once the British left. Mm-hmm. What's, what's one thing that's interesting to me about that is that um, it seems like you see what was kind of quote-unquote normal violence that was based on uh, religion or kind of ancestral ties uh, takes on new... It's now political. Yeah. It's now politicized violence, and any kind of conflict now is essentially war. Yeah. As opposed to just kind of 
mob fights or something mm-hmm. like that. It's now considered war. So seeing the politi- politicalization of these kinds of uh, religious or cultural tensions that had been there before now onto a new scale under a new theme or, or context is just interesting to see. Yeah, exactly. And very sad. Uh, yeah, I mean, this whole story is incredibly sad. Um, and I think, so when thinking about, like, modern-day Pakistan, modern India, it, you have to, when writing history and current events about it, you have to know about the events of partition and how that affected and shaped both countries and still to, uh, still does to this day. Mm-hmm. I think that's, and you can, I think that's an important thing to remember about any sort of history. There are these key cultural events that affect countries hugely and continue to affect them for like the rest of their history. Mm-hmm. Like we often like modern historians like to write, you know, about individuals and how like they're like shaping and affecting the culture around them. We don't like to, you know, do like great man stuff. Mm-hmm. But these huge events are still incredibly important yeah. and still affect people in incredible ways. And it's it's ridiculous. It's stupid to not write about them Absolutely. and or count them out as not happening. Yeah. Like 9-11, like it shaped American policy and how we live since it happened. Mm-hmm. And to ignore it as an event is that's at your own peril. Yeah. Well, I think that's, Great. we're good at episode. Yeah. Um, this is going to be, our, we're going to want to hiatus. It's the end of season one. Exactly. That's what we're saying. Yeah. Uh, we're getting a little busy on our end. Um, so we're going to put it on pause. But we will be back in the future with the season two at some point. Absolutely. Um, and well, my my name's Mitch. I'm Dylan. And you know what's not going to be on pause? This song. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> oh, you're going to miss us. <laughs>